Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to my Independence Report. It's Friday afternoon, and I hope everybody's going to have themselves just a dynamite weekend. And, uh, we're having a dynamite uh, show today um, because we've got a gentleman on on with us who I was kidding him during the, right before we came on that, that if I read his uh, uh, resume completely, it would take the entire hour. And so some of it we're going to talk about, um, but uh, uh, Dr. Howard... Jay Rankin is my guest today. Doctor, how are you today? I am fine, thank you, and it's great to be here with you, Kevin. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome that you would be here because, first of all, you don't sound like you're from around these parts. Where are you from originally? Uh, interesting. No, I come from London originally. I've actually lived in uh, the U.S. for 35 years, uh, which is you know, almost half my life. Um, I was a big Americophile, lots of great stories about that. Growing up as a kid, taught myself American sports, listening to the Armed Forces Network coming out of Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And, you know, this was the days when there wasn't the sort of global coverage of sports there is now, and nobody expected, you know, an English kid to know anything about baseball or football or any of those things, but I did. And it actually served me well because... Um, when I was 17, I had the opportunity to come over to the United States as an exchange student. And I had to be interviewed and I had to go up to the American embassy and I had to write an essay and be interviewed by these guys to see whether I would be a good match. And in my essay, I had written that I, you know, I like baseball, which was almost unheard of. Then. And so one of the guys said, oh, you like baseball then? Well, who's the best pitcher? And I didn't miss a bead. I mean, oh, come on. You can't argue with Bob Gibson, a 1.12 ERA, 27 and 9, 386 strikeouts. The guy almost fell off his chair. Um, <laughs> so I've always been Americophile, well, almost from a young age. I uh, was fortunate enough to come over as an exchange student, which was a great great experience. And then um, I got my got my degree and my advanced degrees in London and had practiced psychology as, uh, in the addictions, actually, and then generally. And then an opportunity came up for me to be recruited over to South Carolina here in Hilton Head, and I've been here ever since. I got to ask you, you've been around here for a long time. You've written in excess of 10 books. You've co- New York Times, the L.A. Times. Uh, you've been on talk shows. You've been on CNN. You've been on The View. Uh, what's got to ask you what Whoopi Goldberg is like. But uh, the, 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 I don't think he was on the show when I when well, I was. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so you you've been around and you've done a lot of stuff and you've been a a real watcher of our society than what's going on with us. As a matter of fact, your one of your newest books is I think therefore I am wrong. And I wanted to ask you really point blank. What in the hell is going on around here? Yeah, well, it, it is an interesting time. There is absolutely no question about that. I think there are a number of influences that have led to this. Um, there's a great book, and you probably know it. You, for all I know, you may have interviewed Matt Tabby. Do you know him? He's a journalist uh, from Rolling Stone. He has written a book, uh, came out a couple years ago. I think there's a second edition coming out called Hate, Inc. And it is about how the media over the last 20, 30 years have made division and hate the key part of their strategies. 
Uh, and this, it's, it's just a fascinating, fascinating book. This is, this has been going on for some time and it's reached a peak now. Um, but he goes into it very clearly, the history of it, how it started and how for the most part that is really done because of money and, and eyeballs. And, uh, Matt Tabby, Hate Inc., really excellent read. So that's part, that's certainly part of it. No question about it. It amazes me because I remember when, way back, way back when, when uh, Walter Cronkite, Walter Cronkite was, he was, he was the news and, and everybody listened to him as well as uh, David Brinkley and some of the others, but it was all a matter of news. And then people like Rush Limbaugh came along and rest his soul and, and they turned news into a money-making proposition because it never really had been considered a service way back when. And then they decided they wanted to get some ratings and, and so forth. And so well, that's how, that's how Fox came to be. And yep. because of the ratings that they were trying to get. Yep. And, uh, if you read Tappy's books, Fox was a big mover initially in getting the gun. That was their prime uh, strategy in getting eyeballs. Uh, to be, you know, controversial, to be divisive, to be on one side, to et cetera, et cetera. And that's just taken root now. And of course, the other thing is social media. I mean, you know, something as big as social media is going to have some, you know, some great advantages, but it's going to have some downsides. And one of the downsides is it does make us all vulnerable to even more manipulation. I mean, there's a ton of manipulation. Some of it's very deliberate from foreign countries. Uh, we know Russia, China. I've spoken to uh, people who are expert in this field, say there are as many as 30 countries trying to get into and uh, manipulate the discussion, the dialogue, the thoughts, the opinions. So that's one thing going on, and then that doesn't account for you know, homegrown organizations or people who just have a particular agenda. And it's very difficult. I mean, as much as we say, oh, well, yeah, of course, I recognize, I know people are trying to manipulate me. It's not as easy as you think, because they're good at it, to say, oh, well, I, I know that's obviously manipulated. It isn't. And, and one of the things that I've got particularly interested in that has really taken off in the last 10, 15 years is this whole topic of cognitive neuroscience and the cognitive biases that we use basically to justify our opinions and what we want to hear. And that that is played on a lot. And, and so, you know, critical thinking, taking a step back, really thinking about what's being said, trying to find the basis of the data and facts doesn't happen. And that, that just divides us even more. People are interested in finding people who agree with their core values or what they believe to be their core values, right. which not even be the core there, <laughs> you know, and uh, so social media plays a huge part of it. There's a guy, I won't use his name because I don't want to give him any publicity. <laughs> Good <for you>. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a guy that is part of the Q movement, the QAnon group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, he was a um, um, clerk in a health food store in Southwest Washington. And then he developed this uh, um, um, website. And because he got some hits on the website, he started getting more controversial. And the more controversial he got, the more hits he got on his website. And so he could start actually monetizing his website because of the things that he did. So now he is stuck in a place where if he wants to continue to make money, he's got to become more and more controversial all the time, That's regardless right. of whether or not he has any facts to back any of this right. stuff. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to heck with the facts. Who needs facts? Right. Um, and, and so, and so that is problematic. And that is actually, you know, the internet has provided exactly that sort of platform for people who develop a good business model based on saying whatever they want, independent of, and this was the, one of the points that I made, and I don't, I think therefore I'm wrong, independent of its impact on people. 
And and I think that's a problem. Uh, in that book, you know, we, we talk about free speech. I think people, I'm not a, a scholar of constitutional law, but my understanding is it is not the case that free speech allows anyone to say anything they want at any time. That's not what the law says. The law is really a restriction on the government on what they can limit. And under certain circumstances, they can limit. But I think we've got this overarching concept now that I am entitled to say anything I want and nobody can do anything about it. Well, that's actually not true, I don't think. I mean, you can be sued for all sorts of things. But right. that is a dangerous, a dangerous a mindset because it means people can spread, you know, China, Russia, whoever, whatever conspiracy, they can spread it and feel and feel perfectly okay, even though they know that it potentially is harmful. And there's a problem that we've got. You know, in the in the book I talk about, well, free speech is great, but what about free hearing? What about the impact some of this stuff has on people? Oh, it's 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 remarkable that that it can well and I hate to, I, well, I don't hate to bring it up. It's, it's sad that in the last eight or nine days, we've had two mass shootage shootings in the United States, one in Boulder and one in, I think, Virginia. And, uh, nobody can seem to figure out why these things keep happening. And, and they, they, they're not even sure what the motivation was for these individuals, but, it, it keeps on happening here in, in, a, in a horribly regular basis. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, again, I think we've got a rather lopsided argument in a way. From my perspective, all for the Second Amendment. That's great. However, you'd have to be insane, pretty much, to argue that there should not be any controls on people who get these weapons. There has to be some. Um, you know, we have actually uh, a lot of evidence now from the world of neurocriminology um, that you can look at the brains of people and say, yeah, this person is incredibly impulsive. You could do a test like that in 10 minutes. Really? <laughs> you want to sell a gun to a guy who had a brain like that? Uh, probably not. You know, problem. and now the problem goes is as soon as that happens, as soon as anyone suggests any sort of control, everyone says, oh, the next step will be, you'll take all my gun. No, no, that is not the next step. You're, you're frightened that that's the next step. But if you were to look at this, even legitimate gun owners would surely say that, you know, people who can be identified as dangerous should not have them. That benefits everyone, including them. You know, if yep. I walk into, you know, the store with a revolver and somebody comes in with a automatic weapon, what chance do I have? <laughs> it's not liable to end well. No, it's not. It's not. And so th the problem comes because it's so divided. Immediately it goes into, I'm not going to have any control. I don't want any controls over guns. There should be no controls. You know, it, guns don't kill people. Honestly, I have to say I disagree with that. People do, do make those decisions, but put a gun in somebody's hand, and that is going to influence what they do. You know, if you've got a guy surrounded, you know, around, you know cops are coming, and he's got an automatic weapon, or he's got a knife, is that going to make a difference to what he does? Yes, of course it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not arguing against the Second Amendment. I'm arguing for a rational rational application of it that's all which would benefit everyone and i i and i've said this to many people and there are a lot of people who are you know very pro-gun advocates who would agree with me mm -hmm. there are there i it amazes me that you cannot drive in this country without a without going to take some classes and and get a license and have to take a test and it's a written test and a driving test and you have to do that uh, in order then we do that for the safety of all of our citizens so that we don't have somebody who doesn't have a clue on how to drive driving around and hurting people right 
We don't have any kind of classification on any kind of weapon that we have. And you can buy as many of them as you like for as much as you'd like. And it's, it's just, it, it's just, it boggles my mind. It's, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. We, yeah. we have people that, that, uh, and and what what is it like? Thirty five percent of the people own guns in the country, something like that. I don't something know. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a, it's not a majority of people anyway. Right. Right. And again, I don't think the discussion is about oh, we're going to end the Second Amendment. No, we're going to have a better application of it that actually is going to benefit gun owners. Actually, the vast majority. You know the ninety-nine point, probably nine-nine, whatever it is, percent who are very reasonable citizens who want that protection for their own reasons, and they're entitled to it. And it's it's in the constitution. Great. The problem is we can't seem to have a sensible dialogue about anything. It automatically goes to the extreme, right? So again, if we were having this, you know, in a big forum or what have you. There'd be a lot of people who immediately, you know, shoot me down, pardon the pun, metaphorically, because, oh, this guy wants to end the Second Amendment. No, you're not listening. You're not listening. That's confirmation bias. That's what you want to hear to justify your position. But that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what you're saying, okay? But as soon as we get into it, bang, we have, and I, it has gotten unbelievable in the last four to five to six years. It has gotten just in this country. And uh, so you've probably been a little bit more worldwide than I am. Hmm. It's not that way in other countries, is it? No, no. I mean, in the UK, hearing somebody, you know, killing people or shooting at people is almost unheard of. Um, the big thing, you know, there's, there's violence, but typically it's knife with a knife. Uh, and you can do a lot of damage with a knife, but not as much as you can with a, you know, assault rifle. Um, or even a car, actually. You know, that's one of the other things that we've seen around the world where people are driving into crowds to do it. But no, there isn't that. There isn't. There, there just isn't that in many other countries that just don't have the availability or the easy accessibility to guns. I would really like your opinion about, um, about, about what's happening with QAnon and with, with this, this culture that is out there on January 6th, we had a bunch of people that decided to storm the Capitol. Um, that is our capital. It is their capital. It is their government. It is our government. Yet they appeared to be so angry mm-hmm. about whatever it was that they perceived the government was doing. I'm not going to accept the baby killing thing and the and all of that. That's just a bunch of horse crap. But but why why what is it about our society that's causing people to go that deeply into that direction? Well, again, I think it's interesting, um, the history of that, and I can tell you about that. We've learned to be very successful at the art of manipulation. And in fact, this goes back almost 100 years. Um, Freud, and everyone knows about Freud and his theories about human motivation and blah, blah, blah. He had a nephew called Edward Bernays who came to the United States using a lot of his uncle's ideas and basically started the business of public opinion, public opinion and advertising and marketing. He used that. And what he realized, what his uncle had said, if you appeal to somebody individually about the things that interest them, you can hook them in and then you can manipulate them. Did that? It literally started in the 1920s. And we've seen that grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And it's it's definitely a part of marketing in this country. Definitely a part of marketing. We have the probably the least restrictive rules in marketing. There's really no truth in advertising here. People can basically say what they want. Uh, we have people doing what's called neuromarketing, learning how the brain works and how we can 
target that and say things to manipulate people. And I think it's a mistake, and this is what I have been, I think therefore I'm wrong, is to assume that people either know that, recognize it, or can actually do anything about it. Right. I mean, I don't. I mean, why Why would companies spend literally million, billions of dollars marketing if it didn't work? You, you would think that they would have given that up on the Super Bowl a long time ago because 30 seconds was, what, $2 million or $2 something? Million, yeah. And, 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 and it does, and it's subtle. I mean, it, it, it's subtle and in different ways. Now, let's get into another controversial topic because we're on TV, right? Um, let's talk about the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, now. Let me be clear here. Again, there's the danger of the, you know people watching saying, "Well, this guy can't make up his mind. He's all, you know he's sitting on the fence." No, there's pros and cons of all sorts of things. So right. the pharmaceutical industry provides a lot of great things for people. A lot of, uh, especially emergency situations, surgeries, and things like that. Where I think they have been allowed and they have manipulated the narrative is on a lot of fringe or even psychological conditions. Um, the term uh, a, um, attention deficit disorder, even when I was in school, which was way back in the last millennium, but not that far long, long ago, there was no such thing as attention deficit disorder. It was called minimal brain dysfunction. So it described you know, some minimal things. Over time, the drug companies pushed for change in that name to attention deficit disorder. And what's interesting, and, and there, I'll tell you an interesting story here. What's interesting is that from my perspective, it you know, that's clearly overdiagnosed, I believe, and overrated. Mm -hmm. Some people, for sure. And it's interesting, I happened to do one of the first um, projects in the public school system using EEG technology to look at the brains of troubled elementary students because there's a lot of research on that and you can look at brain patterns and say there's actually a brain pattern that corresponds really well to ADHD. If they comes up with this pattern in the brain, yeah, they've got some brain dysfunction. It's legitimate. Now, interestingly, going into the school, which was in Independence, Missouri, you know, my view was, oh, it's overprescribed, you know, and what have you. Now, what was interesting in this school, which was in a pretty low SES district, is there were a lot of kids who needed the medication who didn't know anything about it. Either their parents or their, their guardians didn't have the time or what have you. They were in a sector of the society that didn't know anything about it. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me because I'd gone around with a sort of generalization. Oh, it's it's over-prescribed, which it is, but for these kids, it wasn't. And it was fascinating. I was going through the results with the parents. And there was one guy who had divorced from his wife and the, the anger and the conflict had spread to this child. Mom said, oh, he's ADD. And dad said, no, he's not. He can read fine. He's not. So the dad came in, I had tested the kid, and I said, look, here's the picture of his brain waves, his brainwave activity, and that is really characteristic of somebody who actually does have some brain dysfunction that we can call ADD. And, he, and of course, when you can show something like that, it's really valuable. He looked at it, he actually started to cry, and he said, okay, I'll make an appointment this afternoon. So, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, that's too much of this. That means nobody should get it. No, no, no. But I do think when we're talking about advertising and we're talking about pharmaceuticals on the edge where the, where the evidence is a little questionable, we need to rein, rein things in a bit, I think. Well, I, I think I, I agree with you. Um, only in that that everybody that I know takes medication virtually almost everybody takes some sort of prescription medication now whether mm -hmm. it's 
whether it's uh, um, cholesterol medication or high blood pressure or whatever it is. Um, and some of it is warranted, but a lot of the times it's it's just you're who you are. And, you know, if you've got if you've got a, if your cholesterol is a little high, it runs in my family. It's a hereditary mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, the problem is the problem then becomes that the medical community really is then driven by that. Because that's the easiest thing to do. Well, we give you this drug. You know, the fact is that so many of the diseases, especially the major ones, including dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, people think, oh, my mom had Alzheimer's. Actually, the evidence is that very little of that is genetic. Most of that is lifestyle. And I work with uh, two leading neurologists, Dean and H. Scherzai, down in California. They're great people. They've written uh, a couple of books about Alzheimer's solution, but it's about lifestyle. There's really no medication that's going to reverse or stop um, the development of this cognitive decline and things going on in your brain. But lifestyle will do it. So if you're if you're uh, forty, say, and you and you your lifestyle, you've you've led kind of a uh, you, you know you you drank and smoked and did a, and your lifestyle hasn't been pristine your diet hasn't been pristine but you want to eliminate alzheimer's how do you how do you what do you change from the time that you're 40 absolutely okay well there's really five categories of things that we know are really important first one no surprise is food nutrition okay and the evidence really is that a plant-based whole food, natural food, rather than processed food, uh, high processed meat is much better, much better. My, uh, you know, studies around that, it's so convincing. Studies in parts of the world, what are called the blue zones, where they have that diet, the rate of dementia and even heart disease is minimal, is minimal. So there is absolutely no question that you can improve health, and that would include diabetes too. I know, I know a couple of guys who've gone from being diabetic to not in three months, type 2 diabetes, simply because of a change of lifestyle. So healthy eating absolutely is one. Exercise is absolutely critical too. Exercise, physical activity is probably the single most, the biggest thing we can do for our health because we're not as active as we need to be. Um, and most people don't do the re recommended requirements, which is two and a half hours of at least moderate activity, a little less if you're doing more intense activity a week. You know, so physical activity is uh, very important. Uh, the other things are sleep. We know that sleep is very important. One of the things that people don't realize about sleep is while you're sleeping, basically your brain goes into sort of waste and toxic maintenance and clearance sort of collect the garbage. If you don't go into that deep sleep, it's not going to get cleared. Bingo. Problem. Sleep is another. Um, stress management, obviously, is critical. Chronic stress will do a lot of things for you. And finally, uh, appropriate social and cognitive stimulation. Isolation and loneliness are devastating. Oh, I can believe that. By the way, we have a, a listener that's got a question for you, which is, it's frustrating that insurance will cover medicine, but it won't cover the healing arts that can do things like cure incurable conditions. Yeah. Um, why is why is our healthcare system designed mostly for Western medicine and doesn't cover a lot of the healing arts? Yeah, and, and that's a problem. Uh, clearly, uh, there are lots of things that we know are beneficial, things like meditation or mindfulness, for example, would be good. Even Tai Chi and yoga, particularly as you get older, those sorts of things we know are beneficial. We know for sure they're beneficial. Um, but the problem, it becomes a bureaucratic problem, and I'm not an expert in health insurance, but, but it does become a bureaucratic problem where uh, this isn't really you know, what is conventionally medical, so we're not going to cover it. Uh, and, and the problem then is that you need to prove that it works. And there's, there's certainly enough evidence that, you know, meditation and mindfulness have tremendous benefits for people who practice it. But, you know, and, and it, it makes no sense because if these things really do help, and they do, surely an insurance company has a vested interest in keeping people healthy, right? You'd think. You'd think. You know, one of the... 
one of the problems with the health system is it is organized around conventional medicine. But the fact is, as we've been talking, lifestyle is huge. So really what probably the biggest thing we can do for people's health is introduce into the system coaches who could actually coach people how to legitimately train, make changes to their lifestyle. That's That would eliminate so much, right? Doctors don't, A, they're not trained in it, and they don't have the time to go into, you know, these are the things you need to do and I'm going to follow up with you. You know, if they give you a sheet of, you know, healthy foods, that's that's good. So they don't have time to do that. We need facilities where people are trained to change their lifestyle, and that would make a huge difference. Boy, no kidding. I was just thinking, it, you know, in this country, and I, again, I'm I'm woefully inadequate when we start talking about other countries, but I do know that our healthcare system here and our mental healthcare system specifically mm-hmm. is in a shambles. It is not we're not taking care of people we're not the even i was watching a report of the um of the and i know that you know a lot about this about the drug treatment programs that they are designed in many ways as a money-making opportunity because you you go in there for a couple of weeks you get clean and then they kick you out oh you're all better now but they don't give you the tools that you need to be able to live on the outside with with a disease like that and so you get caught up in it again some people get killed because they overdose and then other people go back into the system again because they they fail is that am i wrong no you're exactly right you know i spent the first 10 years of my career in the addictions field so i've seen that um and these these things are way more extensive and expansive than just a little diagnosis, you know, a medical diagnosis. Oh, it's addiction. Okay, so what you need to do, you need to withdraw somebody from the drugs, and then you need to tell them not to do that again and get them in a nice social circle where they're not going to do it again. Hey, we've done it. Come on, guys. Come on. It takes, yeah, the first stage maybe, but then it takes months, years for people to grow into a different mindset where, look, I'm not even interested in it. Yeah, even if you put it in front of me, I'm not interested in it. But that's a lot of work that goes, and you can't just click your fingers and say two weeks, four weeks, and you're done. That may be the first step, but there's a lot that has to go on just with any behavior change. There's a lot that has to go on after that. And again, it's the sort of bureaucratizing, medicalizing of a problem to reduce it sometimes to sort of absurdity. Well, I I, uh, have one of the jobs that I've had in the past is I was a a city bus driver Mm -hmm. and I drove a bus for like 10 years, 11 years. And uh, what I found was that people would go, I I would have people come up to me and tell me I'm going into rehab because either it was court ordered rehab or whatever it was. And they said, so I'm going to get clean and sober and then I'll be a wholly different person. Well, they come out and they're still around the same people in a homeless environment. What the hell do we expect is going to happen? Exactly. Yeah, I know exactly. That's what do you expect is going to happen? Sort of a bit like the prison system. You know, if you treat people like criminals, why would you be surprised that when they come out, they're still criminals, right? I mean, really. It's so true. Uh, and and so the the same thing applies. It it takes a lot to make a, ch- a serious change. And there's this difference between, you know, people have heard, oh, it only takes 21 days to change a habit. That's baloney. Uh, the issue is not whether you change. The issue is how robust that change is. In other words, if you got distracted or you stopped, would you immediately go back? uh to the way you were or with this habit hold and the fact is you have to be doing something a whole lot longer than three weeks for it to be really robust in terms of brain function where it gets where a habit you know that is in the upper part of your brain you know the consciousness gets relegated to a different part of the brain you don't even think about it and that's that's months and years in the making and, and isn't it also a social problem because because we we need in order to to make it work we have to 
to get somebody to change completely, they have to change everything about what they're doing and the people that they're associating with and, and the boundaries that they have and, and the spiritual nature that they have. It, it, they're, it, it, almost everything's got to change um, for them to be, really be successful when they don't have the tools. We're not given that. That's exactly right. They don't have the tools. Yeah, your social environment, the people you hang out with are, are, are critical. We are social animals. <laughs> We learn from each other. We copy each other. You know, we even have part of our brain that is designed to mimic what we see other people do. You know, there's uh, the mirror neuron system where if I watch somebody kicking a soccer ball, part of my brain is actually practicing that motor routine. Now, it's not, it doesn't get down to the actual muscles and the gross motor movement, so I'm not sort of getting the benefits of it, but it is laying the neurological groundwork for that. And so there's so much evidence on that, that, yeah, who you are around absolutely is going to influence you. Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting. Years ago... Uh, when I would watch guys play golf, like on the PGA tour and stuff, you never saw what they're doing now. Now you can see them lining up the ball. You can see them visualizing, making the shot. You can feel like you, they can, you, they can feel like they're taking the swing before they ever do it because it's a mindful thing. Yep. And they're finding out that that is actually helpful and beneficial, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So in your brain, you've got um, what we would call motor routines, sort of the program for doing a motor movement, whether it's swinging a golf club, catching a ball, whatever it is, you have those. And the, the whole point of practicing, practicing, practicing is get them so well entrenched in your brain that you don't have to think about it. And it then gets to the point that if you do think about it, you disrupt <laughs> That pattern. And so you get too mindful of what you're doing, it's a problem, especially at a very high level. And that's some, you know, a hitter in baseball goes into a slump, you know, they're thinking too much about it. You know, baseball thrown at 90, mile, 90 miles an hour, you only have a split second to, you know, decide whether to swing or not. That can't be totally conscious because the time you've seen the ball and thought about it, it would be in the catcher's mitt. It would be done. So it's so well rehearsed that it's it's an unconscious movement. As soon as you start trying to think about it, you've disrupted the pattern, you know, and you're not in flow or whatever you want to call it. But but neurologically, that's what's happening. Uh, and And so the value of things like visualization is – you can continually to repeat, repeat, repeat the basis of that neurological movement, laying in bed, sitting on a plane, sitting in the car, whatever. You're doing that. And that's why visualization is a very powerful tool. But it also, on the downside, could be a very negative tool if you are in a slump. And so all you're thinking about is that you can't hit the dang thing. And it, and so it just gets worse and worse. And, and then you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That, 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 that's exactly what happens. Um, and so part of expertise, particularly with motor skills, is understanding that, learning it so well that you trust it that you don't you don't overthink it or think it really at all because if you think um, you're probably wrong uh, um, so <laughs> uh, certainly as far as that's concerned and that's that's by the way is the name of his book I think therefore I am wrong uh, it's <laughs> I love the title where'd you come up with the title um, well somewhere along the line I've been thinking about doing that book for a while uh, and it one of the notions was how not to think, and I then turned that into a podcast. Um, but I liked, I think, well, you know, the Descartes thing, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and I just, just capitalized on on that, I think, therefore I'm wrong. And and actually Descartes, I think, therefore I am, was actually basically saying the same thing, that my thought process is evidence that I exist, not that I'm rational. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he had it right. I mean, yeah. He and all would be buddies if we were on Facebook, if he were around, you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We, I mean, we do a lot of stupid, uh, silly stuff. I won't say stupid stuff because <laughs> that is, you know, 
some of us do it out of ignorance and and some are just don't know any better mm-hmm. uh, i've had i can't tell you how many conversations i i've had where somebody said uh well you know the president of the united states is from kenya and i said no no i'm sorry he's 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 not i said i saw that on the internet how do you argue with that <laughs> <laughs> you can't really. I mean, you can't. You, you, know, you, you just can't. Um, maybe the only way to do it is become more extreme. You know, you know, like, well, do you think any of the presidents have ever come from America? I mean, they. I mean, come on, that's baloney. They've ever come from all over the world. You know, just get more extreme, uh, and, and perhaps show them. You know, perhaps. You know, they, they'll stop, but you won't convince somebody. You know, they say, look, we've never landed on the moon. That whole thing was a sham. You know, the answer, the best way of that is, you believe there's a moon? Come on. You know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have to laugh. There's a, there's a there's a gentleman that has appeared on my show before, and he was talking about energy and some of the things that that I could subscribe to and and stuff. And he said one time he said it's really important that we talk about the fact that the moon landing was faked. And I uh, I basically said no we're not we're not we're not gonna go we're not gonna go there because uh, number one you can't prove that it was faked no more no more than I can prove that it was real right. And but I was there in '69, and so you know I saw it on the TV, so it had to be real. Yeah, I mean, people can dismiss anything they they don't want to believe in what what's called confirmation bias, which is, you know, the, and and that's another thing about media because you know their their strategy is to make sure to identify us as individuals. And know everything about us, so we can pitch. They can pitch to us something we will like and agree with. So their goal is really to reinforce whatever view you have to make you like the product and buy it. That's that's also where we've gone off the rails. It's really scary because because now I know you've done a podcast or you do a podcast, mm-hmm. correct? What's the name of your podcast again? You know? How not to think. Perfect. I like it. <laughs> I like that. It's better to not think sometimes. But yeah. when I started when I started doing research and I wanted to come up with a mixer and I wanted to know which microphones to buy and mm-hmm. the lighting and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly on my Facebook page, I started getting all these commercials for mixers and lighting and microphones and and different ways to do podcasts and stuff. And it's because they have an algorithm that, that is really pretty sophisticated don't they oh they do and 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 sometimes i know it sounds a little psychotic but sometimes you do you do wonder you know how much they're listening i had a conversation with my doctor about um something and the next thing i know literally within five minutes on my facebook feed here are ads about you know compensation if you've had this problem how did that happen uh you know and maybe that's why some of the conspiracy theorists get to be because they can see some of the things that are out there like the algorithms that you can you can uh, identify a license plate from space um you know with the various technologies that they have and so there is literally nothing these days that would not be believable right right and there, and also, um, as I mentioned in the book, there are sort of three fundamental functions of the brain that really add to the problem. One is, you know, thinking, serious thinking, critical thinking, takes a lot of time and energy, right? It really does. I mean, if you're walking along and somebody says, you know, says, uh, Kevin, you know, what's 10 by 9, you know, times 9 divided by 6? You'd have to stop, actually to actually use the mental energy you, you need to work that out. So the end of the brain tries to conserve energy because survival is its main goal. So to do that, it does a number of things when it conserves energy. First of all, when looking at two things side by side, it only looks for the differences, does not look for the commonalities, right? Oh, okay. This is actually the basis of a lot of illusion tricks, magic tricks, 
Okay. So if I show you four cards and, you know, three of them are queens and one is an ace and then pull it out, chances are good you're going to remember the ace like that. Right. And I'll say, oh, I think you chose the ace. Yeah, because the brain looks immediately at contrast between two things. And what that leads to is very simplistic binary thinking. It's either this or it's that, right? It's either masks are either, you know, prevent anyone getting it or they're totally useless. That, that's what it is. But the world's not like that. You know, we live in a world of probability, not either or. It's way more complex. And so if you want to reduce it to that, you're going to end up stupid, right? No, you are, because yeah. you're going to miss it. The world's probabilities is not about, you know, do masks save anyone or, or prevent? They, they reduce the risk, okay? Now, how much? You know, I, but they've reduced it. It's not about them fixing the problem, you know? If masks work, then nobody would have it. No, no. Masks reduce the probability, so they're just reducing the numbers. But that's not how we see it. The brain will say ah, two things. And that, of course, is also the basis of, hey, racism, if you want to call it that. You know, I know that term has gone through a lot of changes. Um, but the fact of the matter is, unless you make a serious, concerted effort, if you put a blue person and a yellow person together, and they actually don't know a whole lot about each other, right? They will fall back on the stereotypes of the things they think they know about blue people and yellow people, and also assume that this person is a 100% represents that stereotype. And that's such BS. It's a know, BS. I, I don't know if you are familiar with this research or this, this lady that does this. I forget her name, but, but in, to explain the fundamentals of racism, she'll take a group of people and um, she'll divide them by eye color. Have you heard of this? No, no. Uh, they divide them by eye color. And then it depends upon the eye color. They, get, they then assign traits to the different eye color right. that will then determine the behavior of the people. So people with brown eyes tend to lie and, and you know, you, whatever they make up. Yeah. And so at the by the end of the time you actually have people that believe what they're being told about the differences between eye color of people which there is none. Right. But right. they will believe it anyway. That's right. That's exactly right. And the 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 first essay I actually had to do in my undergraduate psychology course at the University of Nottingham was how can intergroup conflict be reduced? And the answer is by getting together and hanging out together, because then you don't see their eye color or their color. You know him as Joe or Bill or whoever, and and that recedes. But the only thing you know about somebody are these stereotypes, and they got to be like that. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I my favorite example that I that I I heard and then I have used incessantly since is that uh, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. Okay. And uh, so whenever we uh, would watch a game, there would be 60,000 people that would be in the Seahawks Stadium. And in your case, in London and Wembley Stadium, right. you've got, you've got 100,000 people that are watching uh, uh, football or, or yeah. whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And everybody's together. Everybody is, is passionate. They're following that team. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. As long as you're in that stadium and, and then they score and everybody's high-fiving each other and strangers are hugging each other That's and right. sharing beer and all that kind of stuff until they leave. And then it all goes back to, to the way it was. But, well, yeah. It's sharing experience and the commonalities break down those, break down those barriers. You know, that, that's what it does. And in my, in my book, I talk about this a lot and, and how the binary brain does that and how absurd it is that, you know, you have two human beings uh, that are 99.5% the same and you just happen to distinguish them based on the color of the largest organ in their body, the skin. 
you know. And I have a line there that says, hopefully in the future, you know, young children will say, well, back then, did they discriminate against people on the size of their liver? Uh, no, no, we, we didn't do that because it's not obvious, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting, Doctor. What I've just, what I'm discovering, and uh, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important that uh, people get old and and pass away, so that they can come back or do do something again. Because we are in an evolutionary process, mm -hmm. and young kids today have a different attitude about uh, mixed race kids and about uh, uh, homosexual kids, and it's not the same as it was 30 years ago. Because mm -hmm. they've they've accepted it, they've accepted yeah, the differences right. by and large. Not all of them, but yeah, a lot of them. Have. Yeah. No, I think that's right. They've come up in a different environment, and and that seemed to happen. In my personal experience is interesting. That seemed to happen, you know, maybe twenty years ago. Um, I'd been in practice quite some time, and I'd never run into an issue of a case of homosexuality or what have you. And within about a year, I had three cases come to me where where people were talking about uh you know their relationships and their homosexuality and you know it's really bizarre going years without never seeing anyone and suddenly yeah it's just fascinating yeah it really is by the way susan says i love this that our brains create our binary view of things thank you for for making that point because right. it's important it is, and and you're right, Susan, and I think this is one of the problems. We do think of things in a binary way. That's the first simple energy-saving way of doing it. But you've got to go further than that. And the example that I use in my book is, you know, when we watch a football game, we're watching the Seahawks play, you know, the Rams, one team's on one side and one team's on the other. And it's a very binary situation. It's great. But in reality, most times... There's probably a dozen teams on that field playing against each other. Can you imagine how confusing that would be? And there's another 20 we don't even see because we don't even know about them. That's what reality is like. And so you can see why, oh, well, it's just easier. Let's just divide it into two. But that just destroys rational argument because then you go to, to the polars, poles and then it's about division rather than the overlap and similarity. The other thing that happens that the brain does, if you hear about two things simultaneously, there is a tendency to look for a connection between them. Okay? So, oh, one year in Norway, there were as many storks observed as children. So clearly... Storks bring children. It's got nothing to do with sexual activity, right? Um, but that's how conspiracy theories start. Oh, yeah. Did you? And you see this all the time. Oh, yeah. Did you see there were power outages in, you know, Poland and Russia and England and Mexico and USA? Like, what's the chances of that happening? And then we have this virus. Oh, yeah. The two have got to be connected. What? How are they connected? Just because you heard about them at the same time and you can come up with some theory? doesn't mean they're connected they don't know they, they're just oh, no. it, it can it, if it's a convenient argument that backs up what you might believe then you're willing to make that argument because who's gonna who's gonna say you can't make that argument because we don't know nobody knows where the virus actually came from we think yeah. It was China, but we don't know that. Yeah, and there's all sorts of different theories about it, but those are theories, not necessarily facts. Uh, and But that's how people, that's how the brain works. The brain works. Two things. Oh, wait a minute. You know, uh, my neighbor normally takes a walk, and I normally see him, but, you know, I heard the police cars through here. Yeah, I bet he's been arrested. Well, wait a minute. You know, you just connected two things that are related, you know? So... In our country, and I know in other countries, fortunately, it's a little bit different or, or hopefully a little bit better, but how do we get back from the brink of of this this high degree of uh, dis-civilization where people don't care about each other and, and get angry with each other? And, and it's easy for somebody to walk into a grocery store of, of people he's never met and, and, and shoot them. How do we get back from the brink? 
Well, there's obviously no simple answer to that, but I think part of it is awareness of the sorts of things we've been talking about, uh, how easily it is to be manipulated, how people are doing that specifically. Um, there are countries like Finland who have introduced into the school system, you know, some courses, very specific courses on how to evaluate, for example, a social media post, you know, how to look at it and evaluate it and come at it from a particular perception, which is, you know, is this person trying to manipulate me? And if so, why? And what's their motive? You know, rather than just, oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah, that's right. I agree with that. To recognize the biases that we have that people play up to manipulate, like the confirmation bias. That's why companies want to know everything about you, know what you like, and then they can sell you anything because they know what your biases are and how to present that. And that, to me, is inappropriate, to say the least. I think that's exploitation. I really really do. I just think it's exploitation. And I think we need to be much stricter about that. And again, people say, oh, free speech. For example, we've been talking about farmers, big pharma, um, pharmaceutical ads, and the question of whether they should even have pharmaceutical ads on TV for the sorts of things they do. Um, when they're telling you what the side effects are, they are showing these lovely images of these people nice and the music. Why don't we actually say, if you, you've got to put the side effects in, you know, if throw, you've got to show somebody throwing up if that's a side effect. You've got to show them collapsing with a stroke if that's a side effect, okay? Now, okay, that's a bit extreme, but it's an example of what I mean. They know how to brainwash people. You know, a lot of the medications that people take for stress and quotation marks psychological relief are, A, very difficult to get off, okay? Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's not entirely clear, although they can be effective, they're actually changing anything at the core of the problem. It's symptomatic relief. And three, because a lot of the time we don't even know what the long-term effects are, and, you know, Many, many people on antidepressants, and I'm not saying people shouldn't be on antidepressants, I just think we should be more discriminating about it, are on it for years. You know, they're difficult to get off. Great business model. Totally agree. Wonderful. You know, I think probably one of the best business models that's come down the pike in a very long time is uh, ED medications. <laughs> because because any it's number one, sex sells. Number yep. two, if they, can, if they can prove to you or th make you think that they're going to fix the problem, which may be part of the problem to begin with. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and yet they're spending billions of dollars getting these little blue pills in people's hands uh, because they can make a great deal of money on them. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't be doing that if, you know, if, it, if people weren't buying it. And, and for example, we know high sugar drinks and sodas just are not not really good for you particularly if you you know once in a while of course they're fine but if you're drinking a soda a day or four sodas a day that is not good for you that's going to lead to all sorts of issues heart issues potentially diabetes even dementia and yet here we have companies spending 900 million dollars a year advertising and promoting it now is there a balance there you know they would say hey people have a choice we're not telling them we're not telling them to drink it we're not making them drinking well yeah, but you are influencing their decision otherwise you wouldn't be spending 900 million dollars a year right exactly. so i think I, you know there's a it's a tough one it's a tough one i don't know the answers but i think we've got too rooted in some of these ideas not to challenge them like well i will tell you uh, and and by the way, we're talking with uh, Dr. Howard Rankin. He's got a book out there that's called "I Think, Therefore I'm Wrong." I lo <laughs> I, I love the I love the title, and he's also been the author of of uh, ten other books, co-author of another twenty. And he's you've been a busy guy yep. doing all doing all kinds of stuff. But I'll I'll tell you one thing that drives me crazy about our country, and I am as bad as anybody else because I I've spent a long time doing it. Um, and that is if you had a substance that you knew for a fact caused cancer or caused heart disease 
mm-hmm. and would and would su- significantly shorten your life, um, that product would normally be banned because they could prove it. If they and if they could prove that it actually did, well, you can walk into any store in America and buy a pack of cigarettes any time of day or night you want to, mm-hmm. and yet it's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And they put this thing on the side of it that says it's dangerous to your health. Well, no, no, and, and, yeah. And, and, and the issue there again, it comes down to individuality and how you value that, because somebody gets lung cancer from smoking. It's not just their expense, it's everyone's expense, okay? Right. Because we're paying into Medicare or if you, or even if you're in a, you know, the Blue Cross system, you're contributing. In any one of those systems, 5% of the people use 50% of the money, right? And if they're there because of, quotation mark, poor life choice, style choices, you're still paying for it. You're still paying for it. And so people don't, don't necessarily make that connection. And, and so again, it's difficult. How do you legislate for that? Well, you know, there are, you know, there've been places where have taxed unhealthy foods significantly more. And I think that that certainly is a legitimate thing to do when there's clear evidence that prolonged indulgence is going to cause you problems. It is so nice talking to somebody that is as smart as you are, because you're 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 you you make a whole lot of sense on a whole bunch of topics. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, I know it's great, and I enjoy very much talking with you. Really, um, sometimes you don't get the opportunity <laughs> uh, uh, to go, you know, go into some depth about these variety of topics. But it comes down to this, and this is actually the ultimate conclusion of I think. Therefore, I'm wrong. Is that wisdom? Not being smart, being wise, is about virtue and value. It's really about those things. Because if you approach the world with humility, with respect, with kindness, with love, if you're going to be biased at all, you're going to be biased on the right side of things, things that are not going to harm people. And so all the wise people of the past have said the same thing, and it's no surprise that they do. You know, that's what it's about. In the end, it's who you are and do you have those values, compassion, forgiveness, respect. Those are the things that we need to get back because honestly, we don't get those back. As part of the discussion, we're just going down the wrong way down the evolutionary rabbit hole, I think. I, I I agree with you 100, percent and that's that's why my little my little show is uh, about uh, um, declaring our freedom from hate, division, and fear. Because there's nothing more divisive than hate or fear, and uh, they're going to cause nothing but trouble for for all of us. Absolutely. And we have to we have to come to the grips with the fact that we're all one. We can't we can't escape the dynamic of that because that is the reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so we have to find a way of getting back to that somehow. Yes. And I'm hopeful that the work that you're doing, the work that I'm doing, bringing people like you to the airwaves, that, that would be, that'll, that'll help. I I really think we can only try. Um, We can only try. That's all you can do. And again, I think we need to move away from this mindset, you know, part of the American law is, oh, you know, you got to do something awesome, you know, you got to solve cancer or fix the Middle East. No, just be a nice, decent human being every day of your life. That's a pretty good contribution right there. And by the way, for some of us, that's a hell of a challenge all by itself. (laughs) Well, that's true. Um, But, you know, small, small steps. Small. That's exactly right. If somebody wants to contact you, doctor, how do they do it? Um, well, I've got a variety of things. Um, I'll simply give you my email, which probably is the easiest if people want to write directly to me. It's drhrankin at gmail.com. Um, I think, therefore, I'm wrong is a website. I think, therefore, I'm wrong.com. And also, if you want to look at some of the other work I've done, writing books uh, for other people, psychologywriter.com. 
you've been busy and and like i like i said you've been on cnn and 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 the view what's it like to were you in the studio at cnn or were they were they uh, uh, a couple times no actually i was not in the studio i was you know i was it was sort of remote um so does an engineer come to your house and set everything up and get actually, it all ready? <laughs> oh actually it was fun yeah so i was actually in florida and i got it a call that CNN wanted an interview me and they were going to send a, um, a camera crew to a hotel. And uh, this is the only time it's ever happened. I got to the front desk and I said, have you got kind of a room, a big room because CNN are coming to interview me? And they upgraded me to a penthouse just like that. <laughs> so, folks, if you're ever thinking of an upgrade, just go and say, yeah, I'm going to be on a CNN interview. I think they're coming to me. Have you got a decent room? And just, it just <laughs> make sure that the logo of the hotel is in the room behind me, and then we're good to go. Yeah, there you go. But that's actually a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it. I, we're so shameless <laughs> for for a little publicity, you know. It's 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 amazing. So, yeah. Dr. Rankin, it's it's a pleasure having you here. I will you come back in the in the future? I would love to come back. I'd love to come back. It's just great talking with you. Um, thank you for the opportunity um, and keep up the good work. It's been great fun. And what I like to do at the end of the show is to give you the opportunity. We'll drag our soapbox over and to give you the uh, opportunity to say anything you would like my audience to know. Oh, wow. Uh, anything I'd like the audience to know. Um, well, I have a book called, I think, therefore I'm wrong. So, I mean, that would be good. I also have another one, which is a second edition of a book that I brought out some time ago called Power Talk, The Art of Effective Communication, uh, which is also relevant to the things we've been talking about. But honestly, I think what we've been talking about really here at the end is that it comes down to who you are as a person and your virtues and values, not your opinions, your beliefs. It's how you treat people every day. And if you are able to do that, you'll be surprised how rewarding that is. Dr. Howard J. Rankin has been our guest. You are the delight young man and you're also highly educated and and uh and you you've been around the block and you know what's up you know what's what i appreciate that well i thank you so much uh uh i'm not quite as young as perhaps you're making out but i'll happily you know accept that I, you're Just not quite distortion of the truth <laughs> well but you know what i'm what i'm discovering is i get a little bit longer in the tooth is that i'm learning more and mm -hmm. And I like to to associate myself with people that, that learn a lot more, that are smarter than me. And you you qualify as one of them. Well, so, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's That's great fun having you here. Well, so, thank you again, Kevin. If you hold on just a second, and I'll be right back. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.